This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our bi-weekly podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. I'd like to introduce Todd Winward. I feel like Todd has kind of been in my realm, so to speak, for probably 10 or 15 years, perhaps, and I'm not exactly sure why, but Todd is a wilderness guide, an educator, an environmentalist, and uh, and a very active activist. So, Todd, thanks for coming. Morning, Jim. Yeah, so so the way uh, Todd and my, my life has ke- keep intersecting in, in terms of environmental work, but also my son now goes to the school that Todd and his wife Peg started. And, um, and interestingly enough, you took my wife, Rasa, on a wilderness trip that profoundly changed her life when she was in high school many years ago. We were both in Albuquerque, and I was working down there for a wilderness program. So, so wilderness education and the possibility for personal transformation that might lead to social transformation has been a passion for a long time. And I kind of cut my teeth and learned programmatic things in Albuquerque when Rasa was young and I was younger. And so I led her on a multi-day environment trip up in, up in Utah and <clears throat> other crazy places, canyoneering and, and biking and, um, and river rafting. And that love of the wilderness, uh, when I met my wife, Peg, we, wanted, we were passionate about education and how to offer kids that kind of experience that didn't have a lot of wealth or didn't have a lot of opportunities. So Roots and Wings Community School was our baby that we started 20 years ago almost. It'll be 20 years next year. Wow, that's been 20 years. And now your son is going there, so that's pretty amazing. Right, and for um, a kid like mine who loves the outdoors and loves action and activity, it's been fantastic for him. It's the kind of school I think we wanted to go to (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) if we were allowed to. To have a public school be a transformative space is a challenge for us to meet all the requirements, but also lead kids on week-long backpacks or overnight solos. I think we might be the only school in America that requires an overnight solo before you graduate eighth grade. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. And, and you know, my boy, he's in fifth grade, and he's, uh, he's really looking forward to that backpack trip. He's, he's all fired up about it. So it's been a great experience for him. Yeah. So thank you for bringing that to our community. So you're welcome. Yeah. It's been a joy. Probably the main thing that I wanted to bring Todd in here today to talk about is a book that he wrote a couple years ago called Rewilding the Way. Break Free to Follow an Untamed Road. We'll dive into this book specifically over the next hour uh, because I think it has a lot of great things to say about activism and environmentalism in our modern age. Um, Both Rasa, my wife, and I have been reading the book over the past year, really diving in in depth and and stopping after almost every paragraph to, to dissect the, you're, you're my best fan, Jim. The book. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Both Ross and I have been have been really impressed with this book and really profound. You can see it's I've holding up a copy here and it's it's much loved. I like all the orange orange uh, post-it notes inside and the love. It looks like it's been in the nature itself. It, ha- it has it's, or rainforest. It's traveled many thousands <laughs> miles uh, um, and and it's been uh, uh, in in the in the Vividal in the rain. You make my heart glad. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this book comes from a, a Christian perspective, I think. And we'll dive into that. I wanted to say that as a non-Christian person, the book still had a, a huge impact for mm. me. My wife is Christian. I am not. Um, but one of the one of the things that I wanted to, to just lay as a framework for the discussion was um, I was brought up very Catholic. My, my grandpa was... Uh, was um, uh, was studying to be a priest at one point. And when I broke away from being a Catholic and, and 
and uh, went out on my own when I was young. I did a lot of religious study. I spent most of my late teens and 20s reading the Bible, studying the Bible deeply, but also reading the Quran, the Book of Mormon, uh, Hindu texts, um, Zen, Tao. I really dove in on all levels and, and really really tried to study and see what was out there. And, and kind of when I reached the end of that after 10 or 12 years, um, that's when I became very much an agnostic. <laughs> you know, it, was, mm. it was a process. But I, but I found so much of value in all of the different religious perspectives. So even though the, the book Rewilding the Way that Todd wrote, really, I, I think one of the reasons it really spoke to me was it was because a lot of what I got out of my in-depth study and reading of the Bible seems to be what you got. Very activist-oriented, environmental type of interpretation. And I think that's very curious because there's many different interpretations of how of what was what is in the Bible and what it is, and yet you and I seem to have landed on something very similar. Well, there's even actually maybe more parallels than we know already because it sounds like you started your comparative religious journey earlier than I did. Um, I grew up in a narrow-minded Christianity that then in college I ended up studying and got a major in comparative religions that, for me, Christianity was lacking. The Christianity I grew up with was suffocating, and it was fear-based, and it was otherworldly. It didn't embrace this world. And so this idea of God is bigger than that, and humanity needs a deeper, more challenging, more transformative path was in my heart and mind. So I ended up studying Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and came back in a strange way to Christianity and found a lot of Budeo Christianity. I found a lot of Buddhism and Hinduism within Christianity. Right, um, so and did I, I. I came back to it. And so maybe instead of running away from it and then staying away from it, turned out to be my karma, my path to come back and reclaim a wilder, more transformative type of Christianity. So that's become my, I feel like almost my burden, my cross to bear is to help expand Christianity to, to be relevant and to actually follow in the pathway of the man Jesus instead of being a colonial, extractive, punitive, fear-based, colonizing religion that it's done for so long. So yeah, that's a, a passion that I've had with you, I think, but yeah, finding a deeper, wilder way. And so, and so you, you, you did grow up in a Christian household and then broke away and came, came back around just the same. I, I grew up in Southern California in the Reagan era where Ronald Reagan and Walmart and Iraq invasion were all natural for Christianity, right? Uh, a militaristic, consumeristic, individualistic, extractive, otherworldly, salvationary ticket kind of Christianity that ultimately is totally heretical. When you look back at the ancient scriptures, what we've done today with what we call Christendom, the political military institution of Christendom is a far cry, in fact, a complete corruption of the radical Jesus path. Right. So, so who is this book written for? Two audiences. Okay. I spent a lot of time trying to be Bible-based. It was a big effort for me to reach those middle-of-the-pew evangelical people who I grew up with to help see how they, how I have walked and, and how I've gotten farther and bigger and more expansive in my own spirituality. I really wanted to reach those people and say, this is a bigger Christianity that you can embrace. So reaching middle-class, middle-of-the-pew, largely conventional Christians was one great desire of mine. 
But the other was to reach the, the, the person who'd left and fled, self-excommunicated like yourself. And so many people have come up to me and said, well, if this pathway, uh, I'm in. Right. Like, this isn't alien, you know. And so the idea of, of getting someone who has fled, but so many people, especially here in Taos, have actually fled toxic Christianity and then I think don't have a deep root. Many of them have gone and searched, but haven't found something that will be resilient and a spiritual root for the really harsh days that are coming. The kind of climate crisis, petroleum addiction, dysfunction, disparity of wealth that we're in, we're, we're going to need to tool up, right? We're going to need to... <laughs> Like skill up, community up. We got to pony up here to face what's coming. And part of that you're saying is <clears throat> is having a strong spiritual basis. To me, yeah, Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, Cesar Chavez, Mother Teresa. Like we have models of people who have hunkered down into spirituality when the crap has come. And that we return to the church is what King said. But to come back to a legacy of 6,000 years of people who have transformed and suffered and faced persecution and they have a spirituality that knows how to deal with persecution knows how to deal with hardship knows how to deal with facing creatively against empire we need those tools in taos we're so disorganized so many of us have fled from somewhere else we're so suspicious of each other we're suspicious of organization but your religious thirst that you said when you were 18 i love the word religio religion it means to reconnect to actually it's like the ligaments and to bring that back, like we have to reconnect to a deeper tradition if we're going to survive what's coming. And so what drove you then to write the book? Uh, my own spiritual journey. Uh, I had to either leave Christianity or help reclaim it and help rename it. So I wrote, I wrote a book of fiction first, but also this one, that if I can't find Christianity to be an earth-honoring, people-dignifying, hope-despairing kind of pathway that offers me transformation and offers the world transformation and isn't about judging and, and separating, but rather is about uniting uh, and empowering. If I can't find a tradition like that, I'm sunk. For me, this is a pathway forward. Uh, in the middle of the book, I have these seven, seven attributes that I think will help us as we go through into a time of insecurity and anxiety. And so, yeah, I think the most important thing today is finding a spiritual root that unites all of us that can move forward together in common vision in the way that God would be happy about. When we were just standing outside, you brought up a pan-religious or pan-religio type of concept. Dive into that a little bit. Well, I want to actually <clears throat> talk about last night. Just 12, 14 hours ago or so, there was a gathering about water protectors and about the Abeta settlement and the complex stakeholders and all of that. Um, and there's a lot of good people on all sides of this issue trying to help uh, settle and find out how we can share water together. And David Fernandez, I'm not sure if you know who he is, but he's a legacy I here, do. right? And he's been involved in water caring, water conserving for more than 40 years, protecting water and the health of water, but also been a huge spiritual leader in this, in this community. And he was there last night and he talked about all the pressures that cause us to disconnect our souls and our hearts from the spirit of the land and our place. And he echoed a lot of what I'm hoping to follow in his footsteps. And he's an elder and a mentor at this point, right. but this notion of what is a common shared spiritual framework that brings us back in connection to each other as neighbors, to the land, to the water, and to our watershed. So something I talk about and write about is called the watershed way, the concept of an over, 
overarching spiritual framework that Pueblo people have been doing for time immemorial, that Hispanic people, when they came here, surrendered to the land, adapted a lot of the art architecture, and then brought the acequias so that they are in relationship to the land. A lot of Anglos who have come here in the last 70 years have wanted to surrender and live according to the terms of the land and learn from the people who came before. So we have a common context that I call the watershed way, where just taking Jesus's words, like Wendell Berry did this great quote and said, do unto those downstream as you would have those upstream do unto you. Like, right. how is that not obvious? That is right? perfect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> doesn't matter what skin color, what political affiliation, what gender you are. Can't we all just learn to live in this watershed together as common residents? That ironically is so <clears throat> simple and yet so transformative. For me, I grew up as a hypermobile, hyper-consumptive, hyper-individualist person who thought it was not anything wrong to buy whatever I want, whenever I want, consume it as quickly as I want, throw away whatever I want, and come on to the next thing to extract or consume. That seemed normal in America. To actually live in season, to change my taste buds, to learn when it's time to plant corn, when it's time to harvest, when it's time to go fallow in the winter. These are things that land-based people have learned, and I'm learning myself now. Sometimes I have the words that can help bring other people to learn how to replace themselves. So when you talk about this, this uh, growing up in a consumptive, hyperactive, have-anything-you-want society, in your book you call that affluenza. That's right. A sickness, yeah, an epidemic like influenza. Yeah, I certainly didn't coin that term, but it's a, it's a good one. Right, it um, is a good one. Yeah. It is a good, so describe it more. Well, affluenza was actually the illness, the supposed uh, diagnosis that actually got a guy off the hook for being totally irresponsible. There was a young man named Ethan Couch who actually was driving drunk with his friends in Texas and ran into another car and ended up killing, I think, four people. And due to his wealth status, he had a host of lawyers and psychologists, and he actually won in court claiming that he was a victim of affluenza, a sickness that his parents helped instill in him that made him irresponsible, that made him not responsible for his actions because he was so unrooted, dislocated, and unaware, basically a sociopath. But the famous line that he said as he left the crime scene, the police were there and asking him questions and holding him accountable and just the atrocity of what he has done was beginning to realize, uh, him and others were beginning to realize, and his simple statement was, I'm out of here. Like, like it was okay for him to leave the scene because he didn't feel like being responsible. And when I think about what we together collectively as the Western empire of civilization have done to the planet, this is the age of consequences, right? All the generational work of 150 years of exploitation and extraction and isolationism are coming to roost right now in the next couple of decades. And am I going to say I'm out of here? Am I just going to move off planet? Am I going to move to the nearest place where water isn't poisoned? As a white affluent American male, I'm kind of used to moving away. When there's a problem, you can run away. Right. You know, I mean, it's converted my heart a whole lot when like down in the south of us at our neighbor's the Tewa Women United group, Beata Sosi Peña, is one of the leaders down in, in Española area out of San Juan Pueblo and others. And I just love what she said, just a reminder when she was speaking about Los Alamos Labs. And she said, those PhDs who are coming here for a three-year postdoc, they get to leave. Right. They get to come here, learn, 
continue the extractive and pollution and radiation of my, of my homeland and then leave. I don't. I'm tied here. Both my tradition, my religious beliefs, but my whole land base, my whole social network. We don't get to leave just because someone else made a mistake. And so this idea of just knowing that, that what a sickness affluenza is, that I feel a desire that I could leave anytime I want from something, it's just gross to me. So I've got to be converted in my heart. You know, we both kind of had a little bit of smirk on our faces uh, about this, about this idea that you could suffer from a sickness of having too much and not being responsible to your community. So you could just walk away when there's problems. So we have this little smirk on my face, and I, and I kind of saw it on yours. But at the same time, I was thinking, you know, there's a, there's a sociopathic quality to the whole thing because it's not just this kid in Texas that you were talking about. This is how we constantly treat our waters. Just take mining or oil and gas development for an exa- for example. You go in, you take out the resources, you leave all the problems, and you just walk away. Uh, there's no responsibility for these things. And, and uh, there's a certain sociopathic quality to our whole society in how we do these things. That y- You can look at this at multiple levels, all the way from trash on the side of the road and plastic clogging our oceans too, all the way to something huge like destroyed watersheds, climate change, air pollution that, uh, that literally kills tens of millions of people a year. It's, it's not just a rich kid in Texas who got in a car wreck. That's right. And currently, you know, just the arrogance we have that we think we can buy water, take it from where it's place of origin, and shove it somewhere else to meet our larger continuing demand of need is just that kind of arrogance. And I guess, Jim, though, I did want to, I don't want to turn anyone off out there who automatically, usually when the word Christian comes up, people get leery. Right. You know, either scary people lean closer to the radio and like, oh, good, it's going to validate my whole ego system. Or other people are like, shit, man, I got to get out of here. And this idea of the bad name, the the flag that has been waving under Christendom for so long that makes people feel bad, wrong, judged, going to hell, Etc. I hope we can open this. And so if you're out there, the idea that this isn't just a, a Christian handbook, but rather it's getting back to 6,000-year-old Judeo-Christian practices that like, would be a counter-antidote to this idea of the arrogance of affluenza and this idea of extractive mining that you spoke of. Like For me, it was earth-shattering when I went back into the ancient scriptures of the Hebrew land, and way back then, they're talking about the, that the land must have its own Sabbath. Mm-hmm. The land has the right, rights of nature is embedded 6,000 years Bible. ago in the Bible, and we just have right. forgotten that. Right. But this idea that the land shall have its own Sabbath, that the land has feelings, the trees clap their hands in joy when things are good, and the mountains sing, these are real poetic qualities that in our sad, rationalist, reduced, literalist way of reading things, we don't understand the depth of indigenous knowledge that Judeo- Judeo-Christian people had. And the wanderers in the desert, the Exodus story is so rich of things of getting away from empire. And so they had affluenza issues themselves, and they saw the empires of Babylon, Egypt, and Rome. And this is a cultural manifesto of resistance. Yeah. The, it, it, and that speaks to something I really want to get into, which I think is, is fantastic about your book, is this issue of translation. So I'm not sure if a lot of people are aware that when pick up five different versions of the Bible and you'll get five quite different takes on the same things. And that's one thing I discovered in my early 20s was I'd read one version of the Bible and, and I'd realize, well, this sentence is saying something different in that version of the Bible. So translation matters. And because we're dealing with uh, 
uh, a book that was translated from language, some, some languages that are, that are dead and all languages that are dramatically transformed from ancient Greek to Hebrew, not even getting into the Aramaic and the Syriac. There basically were probably six languages before English for many of us. Yeah, right. Exactly. So the Bibles moved through multiple translations and, and, and the the different ways that words were translated and the meanings behind those words and, and phrases really make a big difference. And, and you really touch on that multiple times in this book. Um, I'm not sure if you bring up this example, but one of the ones that I, uh, I got leaving Catholicism was, you know, we say the, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit when we make the sign of the cross. And um, there was always this idea of, of these three separate things in one God. And and it was like, well, that's just ridiculous. But later on, I, I understood that it wasn't the idea of three separate things in one God. It was something that we can't understand. It was trying to convey something different than what than that baseline information that we were told. And and so there's a lot of this. There's a lot of this in the book. Um, one of the things that stood out for me was was autarkia. Atarkeia. Atarkeia. Okay, right. yeah. yeah. Help me with the translations here. So talk about that for a little bit. Um, Atarkeia is a wonderful he, uh, uh, Greek word that Paul uses uh, in stuff. And we love to hate Paul. Paul's the one who took Christianity and spread it all across <laughs> the Mediterranean and somehow was in bed with Rome pretty quickly that way. Paul himself had this dramatic shift from being a good boy uh Jewish leader and, and killer of Christians to get knocked on his butt off his horse and had a, a massive change in a hum, humility. And this term autarkeia can be translated as essentially radical self-sustainability in God. And this idea of a spirit-led, self-actualized, uh, self-leadership comes up in this great line, which again, like when I was a kid, I didn't, this wasn't emphasized or highlighted, but the notion of, he says, at one point he says, I have learned the secrets of being content in times of feast or famine. So it's a very Buddhist thing, right? It's a very chill thing. Like I, I can be content. I'm good. I'm just yeah, good. I'm good. I'm good. Whether you give me a feast or whether I have five days of eating nothing, I'm good. How does that happen? And, and what kind of a attributes do we need to live into autarkeia? And this concept of auto, meaning self, and then kea was a care, essentially, like self-care kind of a thing. Like but to say that he learned the secrets, he uses the Greek words in there, what, what the Gnostics did entering into the mysteries, that there was an experiential training that caused him to learn the secrets of being content. So it wasn't just a magic trick. He learned how to be chill in any situation. That's one of those traits that any Judeo-Christian person should have is what is what the Bible says. It's, it's something that we should carry with us, but why don't we have training schools that teach us how to be chill in every situation as opposed to bye, bye, bye. You're only happy when like Christianity should be a parallel training ground resisting the, the lures of empire. And, and this, this autarkeia then is a, is a counterweight to afflu affluenza. That's right. Yeah, um, you know, so that's one of the skills that any person who dares to follow the Jesus way should have. Jesus was pretty chill in most situations, in <laughs> fact. And that idea of embracing the bitter cup Embracing the cross is another way of saying embracing your destiny, surrendering to what it means as an elder, for example, like getting out of your ego, being a servant leader and saying, what are you really here for? 
even if it doesn't make you uh, popular, what are you going to do with your life? There's a level of purpose-driven life that, that Jesus is an invitation to, but that Paul himself talked about, and autarkeia being one of the skills you got to have. But Paul, Paul rambled all over the Mediterranean, right? He, he sailed thousands of miles. He walked thousands of miles. He got beat up. He got, yeah. <laughs> he got flamed out. You know, and the idea of learning through experience to be content in all situations is one of the things I hope I've learned as a backpacking person, right? right. As a wilderness right. person. So I take kids out in the, in the wild. I don't tell them, I don't preach at them. I don't talk to them about Christianity in any way, but that idea of like, look, why is it that you're laughing when you have no social media, none of the friends that you thought you'd have, none of the food you can buy anywhere at McDonald's, et cetera. And here you are having the time of your life, i.e. maybe the kingdom of God, if you want to use that language, but here you are around a campfire in heaven by sitting on the ground with people you barely knew and you're eating this stuff that we had in our back, everything you have to carry. And here you are at the time of your life, right? right. You know that experience when you get to the yeah. mountains and the, this is all free. This is stuff that is part of being a human citizen on this planet. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I want to come back to this wilderness experience um, part of it later because I've had the same, the same experience as my long backpacking trips and my long travels have, have taught me very much the same thing that it's, it's, it's okay. And you, just, you can be my, my own perverse fascination is to tie in that modern aha moment of being on a mountaintop with your REI backpack or, you know, uh, eating your, your off your stove or something like that. And to know that 5,000 years ago that was happening in the desert. Right. Uh, or that one would say 1500 or 1600 years ago, people fled the Roman empire to become the desert fathers and mothers purposely living in the wilderness. And one of the great lines that I've picked up over time is in the wilderness is where we learn what we fiercely love and what we should fiercely ignore. And so it's a level of self clarification that can burn away all the rest of that stuff in the wilderness so that you know who you are, what you love and what you should resist or ignore. And so it allows you to speak prophetically back to culture by being stepping out of culture. Right. So it's kind of a necessary training again. I think in, in the Judeo-Christian narrative, it says very clearly that we should be escaping to the wilderness to get clarity in order to come back to culture. One of the things that I, where I really got clarity going on long solo backpack trips was, was this, how you have those intense ups and downs. Part of that, um, you, you know, you're scared of, of maybe bears are going to take your food or there's a crazy sound at night. You're, the, the night is a, is a scary time. The day you come out in the morning of your tent or you get out of your sleeping bag in the morning and it's bright and it's beautiful and it's one of the most fabulous experiences and you're going through intense ups and downs and there's something about that experience that's that's mentally and emotionally cleansing. Mm. And you're out of control and that's part of it. That's To me, Correct. you have to surrender and adapt, right? You have to accept what is and the level of surrender is akin to a 12-step acknowledgement like the very first step for Alcoholics Anonymous, if there's a bigger, I'm surrendering to something bigger than myself. Right. There's a power out there bigger than me. And so there's something that's inherently letting your guard down, letting your tools down and accepting what is that you kind of physically and spiritually and mentally, you're on your knees in the wilderness. You're just adapting and saying, thank you, or how do I get out of this? <laughs> and so this idea of that piece um, tied in with then what, I love this word, liminal space. Liminal space is threshold space. The edge. The edge, the in-between, the door. 
how often in our daily lives, when we're just rushing to get our kids to school, rushing to get to work, worried about payments, coming home, getting entertained, rushing, 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 moving from one diversion to another, we don't open liminal space very often. And the wilderness does that. It forces us to open up and possibly be open to change. So this idea of liminal space, threshold space, is throughout the Judeo-Christian narrative. It's just all the time there. And yet, we often, as modern followers of either Judaism or Christianity, we, we're so busy thinking we're right or going back to the same things that feed our egos like church or youth group or whatever it is that we don't open ourselves to the liminal space that God is waiting. So that idea of break free to follow an untamed God, God's waiting in the wilderness. God's waiting everywhere, pregnant and waiting for us to, to be open. I was going to hold off on the whole the wilderness experience uh, but we're going there. discussion, but we're there anyway. And, and so we've, we've really talked about that purpose that, that it, it's, it's a, it's a cleansing space. It's an opening space. It's a way to see something different and a way to move beyond yourself. What else is there in the wilderness experience? Communion, the most essential part of being part of nature. And what does that mean to you? Communion? The deepest intimacy is communion. The notion of a shared body of being embodied together to be corporate, the idea of, I mean, the idea of, of Jesus even actually taking the bread and saying, this is my body, remember me. This idea also of Oscar Romero dying for, for a cause, Berta Casares recently dying for a cause. Right. These are spirit-led people who are rising up among their people and being remembered in communion. And these are indigenous environmentalists, just, just to be clear to the listeners, indigenous environmentalists in, in Central and South America who've been murdered recently. And I was speaking of, of Oscar Romero, too, who was not indigenous, nor, uh, but he was just a middle-class, middle-of-the-pew guy True, right. who then was converted as a powerful person, as the archbishop of all of the nation, was, was, was converted to communion with the poor. Right. He didn't do it in the wilderness, I don't think. But that, this idea of wilderness being communion with nature. I have a friend who is a Franciscan sister who said, yes, I'm on the Franciscan path, but really I'm ordained by the universe. Hmm. And that's really how I feel. I'm, I'm actually, one of the things I was interested in how you would introduce me. One of the things in the last six years is I'm a licensed Mennonite minister for watershed discipleship. I think I'm the only Mennonite minister for watershed discipleship around, but watershed discipleship is a fascinating term that brings a science and tech-based term, watershed, a data and a, a, a physical bounded place where water flows down into a, a river shed with discipleship that's inherently a religious and spiritual following term. And so to, be, to treat my region as rabbi is one of the things I love, to learn from the Southwest and from particular the Rio Grande watershed about what clothes I should wear, what food I should eat, what animals and things live here that I can adapt to and surrendering myself to the lexicon or to the needs, to the things of this place and to treat my everything as kin who are here, the people who were here before me, the animals, the four-leggeds, the two-leggeds, that's communion to me. And the idea of getting out into the gorge, getting out into the mountains and embracing that falling in love like a fierce mama bear, I guess. That's the piece, I guess, the activism that comes out of communion is if this is your family, then you're going to protect it. Right. That's one of the things that I've found in my years of environmental work is you get people out on the land, even just for a day hike. We used to take people up to the Vividal, 
um, and out to, to uh, this, the National Monument before these places were protected and getting people out there for a day. And they're like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And now I have a stake. And I, I guess I would say that in my own, my own conversion and growth as an older person, um, doing the day hike felt good at one point. Taking people out for a week-long backpack felt good at one point. Right. That's still voyeurism. That's first grade to me. That's, uh-huh. that's titillation. That's marketplace. And so often myself and others would basically be saying, is this beautiful enough? Is this cool enough? And comparing it to other places. And what adventure do you have for me? And essentially, it was a consumptive way of looking at the wilderness. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm only going to be here if I think it's fun. And I'm only going to be here for this day. But if it rains next week, I'm out of here. It's that same. I don't want to be uncomfortable. Right. And I want to be titillated. I want my little ego to find something exciting here that I'm going to pay for, essentially, or prostitute. I mean, it basically comes this extraction, prostitution kind of notion of I'm going to pay for things and then not have any real relationship with it. Communion is like marriage. And, you know, I love looking back at the ancient Hebraic scriptures and it talks about being married to the land. Right. And then I look at Taos Pueblo and I talk to them and I talk about, learn about Blue Lake. They're married to the land. Yeah. At least the deep tradition is there. And many of them are being encouraged to follow a way of affluenza these days. So it's a tension for a lot of local native people about that, but they have this deep, deep well of tradition that tells them that they are hooked to this place. They are umbilical corded to this place. They were born and will die here, and they even if they leave for a while, they are linked here in Still a way. Still tied. And so that rootedness, I'm not trying to romanticize it as much as, as David, Martin, David Fernandez said the other night, there's so much disconnection to the heart and the soul of the people from the land and the place. How do we reconnect? Mm-hmm. I love that Hispanic term carencia, you know, of yeah. being, that your identity is completely tied to this right. place, your confidence. Culture, heritage, yeah. personality. And, you know, and so I'm learning a lot as a, as a relocated person. I have felt deep permission after first having some periods of guilt, like, can I, can I call myself a local? Can I, you know, and, you know, I think I've learned two things, and I, I say this hesitantly, but I say this with a lot of relief and liberation. I've learned from particularly matriarchs in, in, uh, in Tewa Women United, women who have specifically said that oh, an outsider is welcome under these conditions. If you are respecting Taos, if you're respecting uh, Pueblo life ways, and if you are repenting and apologizing for any legacy of destruction and colonization that your ancestors did, and if you're pledging to walk a path that is earth honoring and Pueblo honoring, then you're good here. Hmm. That, like, that was like an invite. And actually, three years ago, I led other Mennonites writing apology letters for repenting for some of our ancestral damage and to say, we don't want to walk that way anymore. We want to honor Pueblo ways. We want to honor earth honoring ways. And we can still be followers of Jesus while living humbly in your watershed. Thanks for letting us be here. It was a relief for someone who's like a colonizer. Like, can I, am I allowed? <laughs> so, right, right. so I've learned to work with that, that, yeah, there were open arms. Maria Naranjo and Beata Sosipena and others just south of us said, you're welcome to our ancestral lands if you pledge to walk in this humble and earth honoring and Pueblo honoring way. And so I do. I do my best to do that. And then the other group I have to also ask permission to is the whole Hispanic acequia tradition. And I've learned through some of my allies that what they really care about is like join some of our projects, 
pick up a shovel, pay us with dignity if we're doing something for you. Right, right. <laughs> and pick up a shovel and clean this ditch with us. Let's do Olympia together, you know? That, that, like, let's work together to husband this land in the best of senses, in the best of being married to this land. And so as an outsider relocated here, I've found a permission to be rerooted that I'm looking at now uh, that is a contra... It's a total antidote to the affluenza we spoke of. We were talking earlier about how a lot of words in the Bible are mistranslated or concepts are mistranslated. And this is one of them that really stands out. The meek shall inherit the earth. There's, and, and help me with the, the pronunciation here, meek, it comes from a word praus. In Greek, yes. In Greek. And David in the Bible had it as anav. And this had more of a concept, not of, uh, not of meek, but of humility. Well, and, and that's, you know, I guess to me, as I studied re- comparative religions and really looked back at Christianity as I left it and fled from it and then came back to it is, what can I salvage from this? Is this a salvageable faith tradition to work into the future world? Is it transformative enough? And this idea of, I better understand what Jesus meant when he said, the meek shall inherit the earth, because that's pretty high stakes. To inherit the earth, what does that mean? And right we so often have translated meek to mean wimpy, right? Yeah, exactly. The wimpy shall inherit the earth. That just didn't make any sense to me. And then Jesus himself describes himself as meek. Who would self-describe themselves as meek considering who he was, even if you don't, even if you believe the least about Jesus, he was a pretty powerful person. (laughs) So what did that mean to self-describe as meek and then also say the meek will inherit the earth? I had to go to school on that. I had to go study that. And ultimately, in the Old Testament, anav, this, this term, is, can be used in two ways. One is the, the meek that you don't want to be, the poor, the dispossessed, the desperate. And they get kicked out of places. They get run down by military people in the Old Testament. That's the, the, the desperate poor, is that meek. The other meek is the deep servant leader, David being one of those. Someone who has given themselves in such deep level to the people and to the land that they are an ultimate servant. Their ego is out of the way. And so the servant leader shall inherit the earth. Those who hold things lightly shall inherit the earth. That's the translation that I'm finding. That's the experiential gut level. I'm not going to argue with intellectual scholars about that translation, but to look back in the old Testament and realize that, that Moses was described as the most meek person in the entire Jewish tradition. The guy who went up to the mountain? What, what, what do you mean? Why would he Faced be? Faced down the, the Pharaoh? Right. Why would he be considered the meekest person in the Old Testament? Because he threw himself on the ground when the people doubted his leadership. He threw himself on the ground, which was a sign of submission. And you can kill me if you want. And he just laid himself on the ground and basically said, I'm just a tool. If you want to excommunicate me, kick me out, please do. I'm just here to serve you. And that, that notion of here to serve and getting his own ego out of the way, not being popular for the next election, not trying to run his own campaign. Moses was always reluctantly dragged in, right? Moses, <laughs> Moses was a stutterer, right? <laughs> he wasn't a happy guy in public, but he felt led to serve as a leader. And so that idea of a servant leader, someone who has hold, holded things lightly, the meek are translated in the Old Testament as those who bend but don't break. Those who can, can live on the land and let the storms of empire come across them for a season and then learn to grow again. 
which for me is very, very Taoist. You think about right. or, or, uh, in the, the beginning pages. Yeah, exactly. Like it, like a, the blades of grass. So the way the of water, the exactly. way of water, yep. that water erodes everything over time, but it's not fierce. Right. And so that sustainability, that humility, that preservation, um, that's to me the way of water, the way of softness, the way of a nav. And in my book, I argue or suggest maybe it's only those who can inherit the earth on its terms. The only people that actually can live well on this planet are those who hold it softly, who live lightly, who live into the watershed as a communion of all beings. And that's the Jesus way, as well as the Taoist way, as well as I believe the Taos Pueblo way, as well as the humble agrarian Hispanic way. So that's what I think is this common watershed way with a nav being a central tenet of how to live as a humble person in sharing and softly with all things, to hold it loosely. When I was doing my in-depth study of the Bible and <clears throat> translations in my 20s, I, I translated, translated meek as, as gentleness, but with strength. But there's a, yeah, and there's a ferocity. There is a, a fierceness of strength to it. So yeah, gentle strength is one of those, we don't even have that word in the American dynasty, right? In, in the language of empire, there is no word for gentle strength. Right. That's, that's exactly right. And I think that, that whether you're talking about environmentalism or, um, or how we, we treat the poor, um, and which to me are intricately linked, environmental justice um, and, and poverty are, are intricately linked, um, we, we don't have a way of speaking to how we, we approach other people and the environment with a, with a, with a power that is still gentle. Mm-hmm. And, and the, I used the word communion very consciously earlier. And coming back to that statement that Wendell Berry said, riffed off of Jesus' words, treat the, you know, do unto those downstream as you would have those upstream do unto you. That's meekness right there. Right. That's exactly. an equality. That's a communion. That's a caretaking. It's an active, it's not a passive thing. Right. It's a gentle strength. So that gentle strength, um, how do we put these things into practice? Um, that type of anav or prouse quality speaks to our, uh, an authority inside of ourselves. And, and you write about an inner authority that then informs um, putting these values into practice. And I, I got to say why I'm no longer part of Roots and Wings is because I helped create that 20 years ago. And I like moving on to help create things that don't exist yet, but should. I love or recapturing ancient ways that need to be uplifted back into our language today. And so, yeah, I'm a very practical, hands-on person. I always try to implement the vision or the words. So having a shared vision is important, but then what's the shared framework? For me, this concept of the watershed way is an overarching way of life that's a spiritual foundation that can, I think a lot of traditions can embrace. It shows up in life in things like just two weeks from now, two Wednesdays from now, San Ysidro Day. So San Ysidro is the patron saint of acequias and watersheds and farmers. And it's an ancient Catholic tradition that then has been embraced by much more than Catholic people. It's a Catholic native and nature-based concept. And May 15th at noon on Wednesday, there'll be a, a San Ysidro Day commemoration. David Fernandez will help us guide us into that. Um, but there's a, an ally of mine named Daniel Herrera, also Rhino is his street name. But Rhino is really kind of the high priest of the watershed way, <laughs> and he and I share that and live that together. Um, but there'll be a number of us who are celebrating San Ysidro Day and blessings the waterways with flower petals and being blessed by the water. So that's a, 
that's the thing that came out of the Catholic tradition, but more than, well, you can see, you can look about it uh, out in Facebook and other things. We'll, we'll set that up. But May 15th is a traditional day uh, to celebrate and kick off the spring. Another thing that I try to do is a bioregional food covenant. Sometimes we call it a 25, 75, 100, that by the year 2025, I want to source 75% of my food from within 100 miles. So it's a statement that I hope anybody can live into. And if we in Taos can live, can source 75% of our food within 100 miles, probably anybody in America could do it. And I'm not asking everyone to give up everything. I don't want to give up my coffee, my wine, my chocolate. So 25% of what I get, I can still source from somewhere else. But it's a broad-handed good recipe for me to convert my taste buds to this environment, to grow what I, to eat what I can in season. So it's called a 25, 75, 100 bioregional food covenant. That's something I also get a thrill out of leading and, and working with other people. So that grows, of course, local farmers, that grows local markets, that grows a demand for local economy. So it helps our, our, our uh, wonderful town and county. And so just to step back then to that, that question of inner authority, because I think that's one thing that a right, lot of no people- Right, no one told look, me. <laughs> right. That's, and I think that's one thing a lot of people are looking for is, is you, see, you see all the damage that's done. You see the need for shift for shifting change, but you, but I think so many people don't feel that they have any, any right. What's the pathway, right? What's or, the pathway forward? So I, I kind of geek out on that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so tilt, you definitely tilt do. <laughs> is the nonprofit I started four years ago, Taos initiative for life together. So that's a sustainable living site. It's an old broken down. Uh, I mean, uh, shall we say well-loved Adobe, it's very well loved. Adobe Hacienda at the corner of La Posta and Salazar, just a block West of Albertson's. That's a home base of an adobe hacienda we're fixing up in a co-housing way. Um, and we're, we're, we're supporting and incubating sacred activism there. People who have a deep spiritual root, who see their life calling as an Anav person, humble and serving and want to make Taos a better place. We hope that that can incubate across cultures, that Tilt can be an integrated life together. So we're working with Hispanic and Native people who are finding a common resonance with myself as a replaced Anglo and we're doing social justice work based in common spiritual root for, for common cause, like healthy water, healthy food, healthy food systems. So we want to support those things so Taos can thrive. So, and do you feel like you're constantly looking for new experiments? Like you're, you're constantly experimenting from being a wilderness guide to being a minister to roots and wings to tilt um, to all these different things. Are, are you, you're, you're, you're kind of a scientist out there. You're, you're experimenting, aren't you? It's actually like my antennas are up. I would need, I hope it's not that I'm forcing it on, but rather I'm just paying attention uh-huh. and things come my way. Memes, ideas come my way and I jump on them, but I've learned to liberate myself. My wife is a public school teacher. She gets a regular paycheck and insurance. Uh, and we need to have that. We're raising a kid or in right. college. I, I make money sometimes and sometimes I don't. Right now I'm, I'm making a math video game, swashbuckling video game that I get to I get to dream up the sketches and the storyline and hand it off to people who know how to code and stuff like that. So I make good oh, wow. money doing that. It was through Roots and Wings, the school I started. <clears throat> but that gives me a paycheck about 10 hours a week. And then I have 40 hours a week to play. And so finding out those things, and I'm not, I hope I'm not flipping and flaky. I try to keep these things in motion. Right. But yeah, I've got about 12 things in the hopper that, <laughs> that are all about how do, we, how do we transition to become the people that God has always wanted us to be. Yeah. And how do you do that as a, as a father and a husband and a family man, which you definitely are. And we've talked about that before of we, when we're in we're tw- our teens and 20s and we don't have kids and we can be full on activists fearless and pure and fearless and pure and, and then <laughs> and then suddenly you've got 
More, kids in a mortgage. family, and you have something to lose. Yeah. And and that transition, talk about that transition a little bit. How do you how do you keep up with that? We've got I love, about a minute left. I love that it's grace. Like if I thought that I could and should do it all, I'd be just crumbled. Um, but that's why I, I think spirituality is so important that I believe that I can rest in the grace of God, that there's a belovedness of me, not based on what I do, but just that I am. And there's a freedom there to do that. And to be imperfect in this world is the nature, like it's perfectly imperfect. <laughs> we right. need to be imperfect. So, so I'm a total walking hypocrisy where I'm not doing anything all the way right, but to devote myself to being a dad and pay the mortgage and pay the insurance and then also have enough time to be as imperfect as I can, an agent of change for the world is what I feel like my call is. And I think anybody here in town could do that. That's fantastic. I've been t- talking with Todd Winward, the author of Rewilding the Way, Break Free to Follow an Untamed God. I'm going to describe the book as a as a, a Christian's guide to activism and environmentalism. But I think it's it goes it this book really speaks to to non-Christians also, uh, really talks about the value of of, of working for change in our lives. Todd, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust Podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM in Taos, New Mexico. Edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.tauslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.